Hey, how we doing, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and today I'll be discussing direct-to-consumer growth marketing with Nigel Thomas. Nigel is the CEO of a DTC digital marketing agency called Alpha Inbound, which is currently working with multiple seven- and eight-figure brands. Here's our interview. Nigel, welcome to the show. I kind of just wanted to start off and do a little background on you, which is that, you know, you told me you're the, you're the CEO of Alpha Inbound. Alpha Inbound is a direct-to-consumer growth marketing agency. How did you get the big job? Yeah, so I came in, I mean, a bit of a backstory. Josh, who's the founder of this company, was kind of deciding what he should do with his next step with this agency because he was running it on more of a consultation basis, not really a fully-fledged marketing agency. And I was actually chewed up and spat out of another startup. And I had this opportunity 14 months ago. What am I going to do next? And I spoke to Josh and I wanted to work with someone I could really trust. And Josh is a little bit more behind the scenes, getting incredible results. Um, But he just cares so much about the brands he works for. And he's amazing at media buying. So from my side, I'm more enjoying the business development, the leadership side of things. So I thought we could build a good partnership there. And that's what we decided to do 14 or so months ago. And from there, from pretty much with no reputation in the market, from all cold outbounds using my sales experience, you know, we brought on like 20 to 22 brands that we're working with or seven, eight figure brands on the direct to consumer side. And we work with them on the, the paid ads, but more going into content now, which you can get into in a little bit. But the reason why is just because of the leadership side of things, because I came on as chief growth officer and look, it's a startup. We've got, you know, 10 to 15 people right now. But at the end of the day, we all work, you know, we all wear several hats, as you're, I'm sure you're well aware, bootstrap startup. It was just more to tell the other people what my role is. And it made sense to be the CEO because I'm more outward facing. I'm on podcasts speaking to fantastic people like yourselves. And I'm out there. And obviously, it's more just so the team know like who the people are and what we do internally so we can galvanize them and get the right results. So that was a long-winded answer to your question, but it should give you a little bit of context of where things are at right now. No, it does. And you're 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 a charming charismatic conversationalist. And that's usually an important wow. facet of, of being a CEO. If I'm being honest, I don't know a lot of CEOs that aren't the founder who aren't charismatic. You know what I'm saying? So if, if Zuckerberg owns the business, so he made himself the CEO, but a lot of times you need someone with a big personality who's able to talk to the public to yeah. be the forward-facing part of the company. So yeah, too kind of you, too kind. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, prior to the interview, that your client sheet includes essentially multiple prestigious seven to eight-figure brands, right? Yeah, so, right? So what are some of the paid social strategies that you implement with these brands that you're, that you're speaking of? Yeah, so the two platforms that we focus on right now, just because they've got the most scalability is Facebook, which obviously is called Meta these days, and TikTok. And that obviously includes Instagram as well. Now, when we started out, it was all about media buying, just really inside the ad accounts. But we quite quickly realized, and with the shift of iOS 14 and the privacy issues between Apple and Facebook, that we needed to get more involved in these businesses. And the big feedback loop was with the content So that's the thing that moves the needle most now, and really user-generated content. So if you scroll through TikTok, you'll see all these different kinds of videos. You know, you really need to understand the consumer, understand how they consume the content. And to do that at scale, 
you need to really bring the content in-house because we were relying on that content for the brands we were working with. And since pulling that in-house, having creative strategists, video editors, a production team, it gives us a massive advantage, really tightens up that feedback loop between the content team and the media buying team so we can just move so much faster. When you're spending hundreds of thousands a month on ads, you need that speed because speed kills in this industry. So that's one of the things and really like paid social and content. And then the other thing is just strategy. Because again, now that there's issues with single channel attribution, which obviously most people on Facebook refer to it as ROAS, return on ad spend, we need to look at more of a blended approach. So even if we need to look out into industry, like outside of the social media ecosystem onto third-party selling places like Amazon, wholesale, what we need to really do and educate the brands are working with is understand from a marketing efficiency ratio, which is the MER, which is the acronym that a lot of marketers are using these days, how many dollars are put in and how much revenue is coming out, but more from a macro perspective. Because here's the thing, someone might look and find your brand on Facebook or Meta is, again, I'm just going to keep saying Facebook, it's just easier. But then they might only come and buy your product after being brought back in through a Google Play ad or a TikTok ad. Now, if you look at single channel attribution, you would then, the smart money would be to put the money back into the last click. But at the end of the day, you've also got to take into account the discovery and what's really scalable into new markets. So yes, it's strategy, obviously paid media still, and content. They're the three real avenues that we're pushing into. And that's why you know we're really a growth agency overall. And I've noticed one thing is that the big brands, they don't pay you for what button to click. They pay you for strategy and how to strategically place the resources of the company to get to a new destination 12, 24 months down the line. Yeah. And I like how, how you approach things more from a macro perspective, MER versus, you know, I'll just get into your hot take that you had, you know, prior to the show, which is essentially that you don't believe in return on ad spend. Yeah. So I want to, I want to now give you the opportunity to just tell me this was like a misunderstanding or more importantly, to clarify exactly what that means, because I think a lot of people listening might be like, you know, that's backwards. That's a real hot take. Yeah. So really, please tell us exactly what you what you mean and your reasoning behind that. Yeah, for sure. So just to clarify, I still think ROAS is an important metric. I just don't believe that you should base all of your KPIs off return on ad spend. Because since iOS 14, if we take Facebook we're seeing accounts under and over-reporting by like 50%. So do you really want to base your marketing budgets off something that's that inaccurate? I don't think it's a good idea. And actually, what's interesting is even prior to iOS 14, Facebook ads was never accurate anyway. If you think about it, and I'll challenge the listeners out there, what do you think Facebook's primary objective is? To get you to spend more money on their platform. They don't care about your store. They don't care about your brand. They just care about having a fantastic user experience to keep people into their ecosystem so they'll spend more money on ads. So the ads platform is geared to make you spend more money. So sometimes it's going to be inaccurate. And look, I appreciate it was way more accurate back in the day. But also, of course, 
we had the golden rush of Facebook, you know, the demand and supply, the big companies weren't yet investing. So there was a massive arbitrage on the tension. That's now resetting and going more back to baseline, which is why instead of looking at that ROAS and taking into account what I just said about that discovery process, we need to look at MER, marketing efficiency ratio or blended ROAS across all your channels, which is pretty damn simple. It's how much you invest overall into your marketing and how much revenue you're bringing back. And look, I appreciate if you've got thin profit margins, you're a bootstrap startup, it might be more complicated. You're trying to look and you should take into account the ROAS still, but don't base your entire KPIs off that. And especially if you're working with an external marketing agency, you should at least understand how it's impacting the other channel. Because I'll say one more thing, which is Google drives a lot of revenue for the brands we work with, and we don't touch Google ads. You know, sometimes the brands we're working with have an external agency that does that. Sometimes they have it in-house. But one thing I can tell you across the 20 or 22 brands that we're managing, remember, all of them are like seven, eight-figure brands. The correlation between when we really scale up on Facebook that that then has and the impact on Google, we always see a positive correlation between driving up the ads on Facebook and then obviously there's more search results and money that's coming in through Google. And oppositely, when we scale things down, we also see that impact. So if you're not taking that into consideration, then you're, you know, you're leaving money on the table, but just overall, it's not an accurate representation of how that channel's impacting your brand. So that's why I say ROAS is dead and MER should be the leading metric with ROAS still being considered as kind of more like a secondary KPI. Hopefully that makes sense. No, I I, I love it. I love a good, bold take like that. And, and I kind of want to touch on something that you mentioned, which is when you spend your money efficiently on, you know, meta, ads on meta, then the Google search results go up automatically. Yeah. But here's the thing. You want to spend on Google ads anyway, because obviously if people are searching for your brands and you're getting more of that traffic, sure, search is going to go up. But overall, you should still be taking advantage of that demand because the thing is, is let's say I find your product on Meta, but then I might refer five friends. Now, those five friends might not all convert within the next 30 days. It might take 90 days, but they might go to Google and even search for a competitor if they're on the market for a product. And that's when obviously the Google ads will bring them in. So I'd still be using Google Ads. It's a great platform. And I just, like I said, I'd, I want to understand and help a lot of marketers and the brands understand themselves, the impact and the correlation that all these channels have together as one. Well. Yeah. And, and, and I kind of want to expound on that idea a little bit too, which is that, you know, you touched on it a little bit in such a competitive advertising market. What are some of those other strategies on how you cut through all the noise out there? Content. Content's the biggest driver. So again, I said this to someone the other day, but content buying is the new media buying. Here's the thing. Content, the backbone of all great content is copywriting and psychology. I remember, and I posted about on LinkedIn today, David Ogilvy once said, the best copywriters, they spend 80% of their time researching and 20% of their time writing. And the reason why I'm saying this is right now the time recording, obviously, we're heading into a recession. The direct-to-consumer boom is, you know, 
quote unquote over the market's resetting to, to norm that's in my opinion what's happening anyway and now what it actually takes to have success on paid social and these other platforms is understanding your customer inside out you know i see all these things from these email companies talking about retention instead of acquisition these days and whilst i agree the other thing is is that if you do your research properly and you understand the pain points of your customer, you understand the desires, you understand the group of people that you're going to go after, and you really have that throughout your entire customer journey. So the content, you know, it has the avatar of your customer, it has the copy of their pain points, the landing page, it then reflects that it has congruency. And then the welcome series of your email flows, it's all speaking to your your customer, your specific customer, your one person, what keeps them up at night. If you do all of that, the customers will retain themselves. So you don't need to use smart retention strategies to hold them in and all these you know tactics and discounts. It's just more understanding your customer. And look, that takes a lot of hard work and dedication. And that's where a lot of brands, they don't want to touch that kind of thing. I was on a call just yesterday doing a podcast with the CEO of Bellroy, a really fantastic brand. Anyone should check them out. His name's Andy, one of the founders. And they started their brand in a recession. And he told me that, you know, they don't rely on trends because they don't they don't want to sure like obviously they have the Facebook ad gold rush era, but at the end of the day, they're recession proof because they built their company on great principles and they understand their communities a market better than all of their competitors. So for me, it's a thing of it's back to basics now. You know, we're going into a recession. People are only going to open their wallets or purses when they see things that they actually need. And that takes really good understanding of your customers. So whilst I can talk about how content's going to help you out, the idea is that when we're a marketing agency, If we come in, the brand understands their customer better than their competitors. We can make the best content and copy and tell the best stories. But it all comes back to how well do you understand your customer? And obviously, how good is your product at solving their problem? No, that's great. And, you know, I think it's interesting when you, you know, start a business under such a small box, we'll say, and you have to deal with adversity initially then you think more creatively and you solve problems more creatively that can be implemented in kind of like a a larger scale. So I I, kind of like that. So, you know, my background is as a producer, you know, I produced a few TV shows that relied heavily on sponsorship. So we had to work with marketing agencies all the time. And sometimes we'd be working with people who were new to working with TV, where they were used to, a lot of these media buyers are used to working with social media generally and and never worked with TV before. And there was kind of like a bit of a growing pains where we had to do the legwork and describing, you know, what it looks like, how it looks. And, And I'm curious how often you guys pursue new avenues of marketing and more specifically how you navigate that. Yeah. So honestly, I was actually out for some food the other day with one of our partners and they brought the person who's now managing like their TV side of things. And from that conversation, whilst prior to that, I wouldn't have ever thought of us pursuing TV. I also then understood the complexity of that avenue. And whilst it's, you know, again, now we, I think a lot of brands, they should look at those avenues. There's some underpriced attention there. Another one being direct mail. This is a fantastic avenue too. But for me, it's 
important. I mean, we're still a pretty small team, but it's important not to spread ourselves too wide because what it really takes, and I just talked about then about how much you understand your customer, how long it takes to build out this great content. And obviously, you know, the adverts off the back of that, that's hard. And we just have great partners. And I prefer to build partnerships with people who are hyper-focused. They've got years of experience and that's the way we do it. So we'll refer you know, those opportunities out to partners that we work with. And then together, the idea is actually, again, that the partner we were speaking to was this, again, for any brands out there, this was such an incredible idea from my standpoint, because obviously marketing agencies are all going to work with a ton of brands. They flew out the agencies that they were working with to an event treated them to all this food and whatever else. The brand's name, by the way, is called Exum Honey. You should check them out. They're an amazing skincare brand doing great things in the space. But the founder really sees the marketing agencies as extensions of their business, and he treats them like that. So obviously, from the, you know, the smart thing there is when the agencies look at all the brands they're managing, they're going to probably prioritize them just because they like them more. And I think that's the way we like to look at it. So when we're looking at working with these brands, we want to be an extension of their company, but we also, as well as we want to try and collaborate with the other avenues. So if you're managing the TV side, I can have a conversation and understand, you know, what do you need from our side of things so we can give you some feedback from us. And then together we can collaborate and then have that overall macro approach where all the experts come together around one round table and we work together instead of obviously thinking, you know, like you're doing that, we're doing that. We need to get this marketing budget because again, if we align everyone overall macro, we win. That's the best way to do business, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot of like symbiosis is what it's all about, really. Yes. And obviously, you have to have the right personalities and brands to do that. Not everyone's on the same page. And there's a lot of sharks in this industry, as you well know. But yeah, that's ultimately, from an idealistic standpoint, the best way to approach it, in my opinion. Well, that's great. And it's kind of a good segue into the fact that I have heard you on a, on a couple podcasts. You've kind of you know mentioned it a bit here that you're a pretty big advocate for uh, you know, one transparent marketing and yeah. two more long-term contracts with brands to start off. How does your brand specifically practice transparency? Yeah. So it starts from the, the first interaction, you know, due diligence is a massive thing. If you don't do the due diligence, cause I mean, if we look at what it takes to run paid media at scale, there's only five things. Firstly, it's the content. Secondly, it's offers which that is important. The third thing is landing pages. The fourth thing is retention. And then the fifth thing, probably most important, is unit economics. So in that discovery process, we're analyzing all of those five areas. And if, for example, the landing page is totally off, or let's just say the unit economics, which is the main one, is totally off, And there's no way that we can ever achieve scale with this brand because their margins are just terrible and it's never going to back out in line with obviously rising ad costs. Then we'll just be honest with them because sure, we could probably pull the wool over their eyes, use, you know, sales strategies to get a deal over the line. But do I really think as a CEO that the, my team who obviously we spent a long time recruiting, so we were of a players are going to be motivated by a brand six months down the line where they literally have their hands tied because of razor thin profit margins 
No. And I take that responsibility very seriously, not only for the brand that we're working for, but also for our team members. Because if our team members aren't motivated to work for that brand and there isn't that, you know, long-term scalability there, then we might as well be honest up front. And sure, I understand as a bootstrap startup, it's hard to say no to those opportunities. But in Q3, I must have turned down like 15, 20 brands just because it wasn't the right time. And again, in an industry where everyone is telling them and blowing smoke up their ass, actually, if you're honest with people, brutally honest, you stand out and you gain something that's way more important than anything else, which is trust and respect. And that's how I like to build my relationships. Has that advocacy been able to affect the marketing sector as a whole? You know, I mean, because you are the CEO, you're going on podcasts, you're saying, you know, we should practice a little more transparency and altruism. Have you have you seen that affect kind of the marketing sector? To an extent. I mean, I'll be honest, I only started building my personal brand and getting out there this year. So probably not had enough time. I know there's other people, it's not just me in the space, but I think the biggest problem is the fact that whilst the opportunity of the internet has been amazing for so many people and, you know, people who don't have necessarily like the Harvard qualifications who have built these incredible companies, it's also given rise to agencies, especially marketing agencies in the digital realm, just they've had access to anything. There's no barriers to entry. And then these brands who are coming from offline to online, especially like in the pandemic and whatever else, you know, there's no barriers to entry. There's there's no certificates that are needed. And they're just promising these wild results. And often I think they actually believe it a lot of the time because they don't understand how to run business. You need to understand financials, operations. And these, you know, marketers with not that much experience who are marketers, they're not business operators, obviously come into the space. They've made it work for a few brands, but scale, that's a whole different ballgame. And I think that's where there's been a real breakdown in trust. So it's not necessarily always their fault. It's just the education and experience. Because obviously, if you have success and you build a marketing agency to X amount, it's probably a lot easier to go and teach other people how to do that and, you know, sell them a, a digital course on how to do that. And whilst, you know, online education is a massive growing industry, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of sharks out there and that it's the education side of it. So yeah, hopefully these podcasts start to educate people, but I think the brands are becoming more aware and hopefully with more conversations like this, we educate the market and as a whole, we move forward in the right direction. I definitely think it's the right right direction to, to be marching, honestly. You know, when you're practicing this transparency and this honesty, you, you mentioned that, you know, you don't want, say, razor thin profit margins. But, you know, for any business that's out there listening that's interested in working with Alpha Inbound, yeah, what's kind of like the preliminary vetting process? How do you how do you determine you know, what companies you work with and what companies you don't? Yeah. So a lot of the brands who work are in the health and wellness space, really, because their profit margins are usually better, you know, like in the 70 plus percent range. They also have better lifetime value because let's just say, for example, a supplement brand compared to a fashion brand, you're going to be more likely to buy a supplement product on a monthly basis just because the habit and the lifestyle and then stay for 12 months, obviously, if it is a good product versus a fashion brand where, you know, you buy a, 
a fancy pair of shoes, you're probably not going to buy that again for another six to 12 months at least. So retention of that model is easier just because of, again, the community and the group. And we see that reflected in a lot of the numbers that we work with. So as you can imagine, it makes more sense from a business owner's standpoint to pay more to acquire that one customer if they know over the course of the next six to 12 months, they're going to be spending X amount. And obviously, we can see that in the numbers. So in terms of actual, like if you want to go into the details, usually brands that are at least spending 20000 a month on ads, whether that be on Meta, TikTok, it's, it's more 50 plus these days. And then apart from that, in terms of the unit economics for Facebook, this is my, or Meta, this is my advice, which is it's a discovery platform. And if you can't reverse engineer your unit economics to a place where you can get as close to break even then you're going to really struggle on that platform. So most of the brands that we work with either just want a 1x return, if we're talking about the the single channel attribution ROAS, but overall what I would recommend is having 30% MER or like, you know, three to five X MER blended. That's a good number to be at. So if we can reverse engineer the unit economics so we can be at that and we're scaling up to, you know, 500K, 500k plus on ad spend plus, then that's kind of where we want to be. Now, usually that also requires redoing their content, which we're seeing more and more of, especially for TikTok, because the big difference between TikTok and Facebook is the algorithms a lot less mature. So the algorithm finds it a lot harder to latch on to a specific audience within their database, which means the content fatigues a lot faster So you need a lot more content. And whilst TikTok's a lot cheaper to actually bring eyeballs to your brand than Facebook, if you need to do twice as much content, a lot of people don't understand that trade-off. And then they realize when they start doing TikTok, how much time and resource they got to spend on content. That's why I'd recommend to anyone, if you're going to work with an agency for TikTok, they need to also have a content team. Otherwise, it is not going to work out. And so that should give you an idea of kind of the brands we're working with. No, that's great. I think that a lot of this new technology, you know, getting into the TikTok space, while it sounds trendy, some people come into it not fully understanding that, you know, you got to crank out two or three posts a day or stuff, something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. So I want to kind of remark on how, you know, we have been talking about Facebook and meta and correcting ourselves throughout this conversation about that, because frankly, it is so difficult to rebrand. I mean, that's kind of the perfect example of the difficulty in, in, you know, attempting to rebrand is, is I will never stop calling it Facebook in my head. And you guys had to rebrand your agency from scratch. Can you tell us about how you did that or the difficulties in doing that? Yeah. So when I came in to work with Josh, I'll be honest, I thought there was going to be a little bit more there. He was really running the agency, like I said, more as a consultant and a freelancer. So there were no systems, no CRM, not really a website, no marketing. So we built the entire thing from scratch. And whilst I came in, actually, if I'm being transparent, my initial idea was to make some sales and help Josh out, get some commissions, and then go and start my own thing. I quite quickly realized a lot about my personality in that process is I find it really hard to just sell someone down the river. 
Not that I wanted to do that anyway, but the point is, is I didn't believe that we could get the results because we didn't have the systems and operations there. So I needed to do all of that first, bearing in mind I was only getting paid after commissions, which was obviously hard at the start, but I needed to build all the op- help build all the operations and bring some people on that I knew from different you know companies I've worked with in the past. So we could have that foundation in place to then really scale upon. So, you know, we started a podcast, we read on the website, I post on LinkedIn every single day, built a bit of a community there. Obviously, like you said, going on podcasts, we did mostly built through outbound. We sent about probably 10,000 cold emails in the first year, which brought on a lot of the brands we're working with. But then most importantly is finding A players and finding a way to bring them on board and galvanize that team. So instead of obviously it just being Josh running the ads, he's now got a copywriter, you know, he's now got a content team behind him. And we've got other media buyers from some top agencies who, again, with all that shared knowledge is, yeah, it's that's just the difference really. And having a six, seven person professional team being put on every single account we work with, that's what we, we do to beat other agencies who are slower, more lethargic. And honestly, the biggest thing I've realized, because the first thing I did actually before I did anything was I jumped on calls with other agencies. And I did that so I could understand their sales process and I could understand the holes in their process. And from that, I realized there was a hell of a lot of opportunity. And I also understood that most agencies can't resource properly. So you probably know, you spoke about it yourself, where you had kind of junior people on the account. Often you'll get sold, you know, the dream with the the guys at the top. And then after you sign that deal, you, you make that big retainer payment, you'll get handed off to a junior who's learning on the job. And the reason that is, is because from an internal perspective, Obviously, me looking at the finances all the time, it's really hard to scale an agency and keep profitable margins. And that's why a lot of these agencies, they just turn into sales machines and just churn through people because it's hard to keep that quality up. And honestly, the trade-off for us, if I'm being frank, is we have fairly low margins, but we have great retention of the brands that we're bringing on. I think since we started... 90% after the initial 90-day contract we have brands on have signed on for an, an, you know, a following 90 days, which I'm pretty proud of that. And sure, we could have made a lot more sales, but at the end of the day, our team are really happy and enjoy the brands that we work with. And for me, long-term, that's the most important thing. So yeah, they're the main things that I did to rebrand the agency. Started out more outbound. It's transitioned more to inbound now. And now I'm looking to build out the marketing team more, our internal marketing team, so we can really start scaling next year. So I'm excited for that. No, that's great. I think that's really great advice. I want to do um kind of backtrack to your role as the um as the CEO of the company. Honestly, I think we're actually seeing right now the real-time impact that a CEO can have on a company with kind of like the turmoil going on at, uh, over at Twitter and <laughs> I, you don't you don't have to comment on any of that. It just makes me think as kind of like an outsider looking in, you know, about the role that a CEO plays in cultivating a culture and yeah. setting the tone of a company. Yeah. So is that something that you consider an, an important part of your job? And if so, how do you set the tone at, at Alpha Inbound? Yeah. So for me, my first love was sports. And obviously being from the UK, as you can hear from my accent, football or soccer, as you guys call it, is the big sport there. 
And I got a lot of my lessons, not from school and education, but actually from sports. And a lot of that reverberates back into team culture. And a big one, even though I'm a supporter of Manchester City, Manchester United were the team that were winning all the trophies back when I was a child. And Sir Alex Ferguson was their manager. And a big, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a big, obviously Cristiano Ronaldo has done some viral stuff at the moment as well, but that's interesting timing. But the big thing that those guys had is standards. Alex Ferguson he used to have captains in the dressing room. He had his standards but then he'd almost have his lieutenants on the pitch, which maintain those standards at all times. And if, you know, someone was late to training or someone wasn't pulling their weight, you know, instantly people would jump on it straight away. So whilst I'm still learning and developing, I think having standards across the board, and I'm not really a fan of being a a disciplinarian or, you know, running a company like a dictatorship, you need to give people, especially a marketing creative freedom but you also need to set standards. And that's one of the, the main things for me. Otherwise, when you're not there, because obviously, you know, as a company scales, you're not going to be able to be everywhere. You need to make sure you trust those people and the standards are kept. And when you're not there, they maintain the standards and pass them on to the next people. So for me, that's the, the most important thing in the culture. And then the other thing is just awareness of numbers. So I was at some events recently and asking really the difference between agencies that do half a million a year to agencies that do anywhere between like 20 to 50 million a year. And the biggest thing is really awareness of the numbers and breaking that down into different departments, but not just the leaders of those departments knowing their numbers, every single person in the company. So after that, I've really tried to sit down our team, break down each of the numbers in line with our higher level company goals and make sure that everyone is aware of them. And now doing more routine checks on a weekly, you know, breaking them down quarterly goals, obviously yearly goals, but quarterly goals, monthly, and then even breaking them down into weekly to make sure that we're always, you know, going, we have that direction and we're always going towards our goals and then we can course correct But most importantly, and like I said earlier, which most agencies don't understand who are struggling, understand how we can resource to hit those goals. And then we can get that feedback from the different team members. So I think that's the biggest thing and the biggest thing that I'm trying to implement right now. What I'm hearing you say is a lot of accountability. You know, that's kind of the word that that jumps out at me is accountability and education, frankly. Is that the hardest part of the job? What do you consider the hardest part of the CEO job? Well, for an agent, I mean, CEO, I'd still say for myself, I'm pretty young as a CEO because I spoke to, we talk about levels, right, in business. I spoke to a guy, I'm not sure if you know him, called Drew Green the other day, who's the CEO of Indochino. And, you know, he was, I think, offered a role at one of Amazon's highest divisions could have had anything he wanted. He turned that down, went to work for Indochino, who were in a real, real bad financial place. And within five to six years, completely turned the company around. They're now the second fastest growing company in the entirety of Canada. And they're doing over like $150 million in revenue a year plus. And they've got a massive valuation. And he's got loads of experience. And when I spoke to him, just within 30 minutes, I was just like, wow, Like I need to step up my game and some of the stuff he was saying. So I think almost, yeah, I'm a CEO of a startup, but I almost don't consider myself as a full-fledged CEO like that guy of a big company. So I also want to point that out there. But I think one of the biggest things from the agency's perspective 
is the fact that we don't just have to manage people internally, we have to manage people externally. So obviously, if it's a SaaS product, it's going to be slightly different. But for an agency, it's a people business. It's a lot on how you manage those relationships. When I'm not around, because obviously, I'm the front uh, facing person. So I've had a lot of initial conversations with the brands we work with maintaining that relationship and obviously what I've spoken to them about, what we were talking about earlier in terms of making sure they don't feel, you know, I've sold them the dream and then it isn't maintained. That's been one of the hardest things and making sure that feedback loop between those different departments stays consistent whilst you scale. And obviously we've been going through some, you know, pretty decent growth recently and making sure that's that's kept there and we've got that those partnerships that we're building with the companies we're working with. So I'd say that and the the operations on the content side of things, um, making sure that operation is really working at scale, which is complicated. Um, and obviously, as everyone else, all other CEOs have recruiting the right talent is always hard, but you find a way. You're extremely humble because it sounds like an extremely complicated job that I don't know if I'd be capable to do. What are some of the goals that you have set for maybe it's it's yourself or for your company? Because, you know, a number like 150 million seem to really impress and jump out at you. What would be that number for you where you're at right now? Yeah, sure. So, you know, next year we should be able to really progress into the multi seven figure range as an agency. Bearing in mind we're bootstrapped, we've only been going like this is our first full year of growth. So that's really where we want to be. How far into that multi seven figures we'll be able to get will really depend on what happens in Black Friday and also how we look on the sales team side of things and content side of things. And then outside of that, really progressing more into the content side. So we're looking to build out an entire like content studio next year. We've already got access to like 100 UGC creators, but developing those relationships more and maybe going slightly outside of the Shopify ecosystem and into, for example, the Amazon ecosystem, because all of these kind of brands need content. So that's a huge area of opportunity for us. And, you know, these brands, like obviously there's some massive deals there potentially for us where we can really help these companies out and maybe more on the strategic side of things. From a personal side of things, I'm looking to keep extending my network, talk to people like yourself, Drew Green, as I mentioned, these kind of guys, and just really learn. You know, I quit my corporate role at 26 years old, and I think I said I wanted to be a millionaire by 30. I'm now 31 years old and I have a much longer term outlook on life. You know, I I want to really just learn from the best people, understand that there's a lot of time here. And whilst obviously the internet's given rise to these multimillionaires in their 20s, you've got to understand that statistically, and I think Drew Green might even have mentioned that to me on the podcast, the average age of a successful founder who like you know were a high growth startup we're talking about i think is actually like 56 so experience counts and i'm ready to take my time and learn from the best people and the last thing i'll say on that is anyone who hasn't started or they are starting a marketing agency it's a fantastic apprenticeship to give you really put you like in the fire and great cash flow business too but to understand all the different roles, you know, sales, marketing, logistics, understanding how to work with people, you know, big business owners and how to control their expectations. 
And for me, it's just a great learning experience all around. So I'm privileged to be in this position, privileged to work with the people that I work with, privileged to be on podcasts with great people like yourself. Um, and that's the the outlook really for the next 12 to 24 months. That answers your question. No, that's very kind of you to say, Nigel. And if I'm being honest, I turned 30 two weeks ago. So I got a definitely long way to go because, you know, as a CEO of a company, you know, I, th- I think you're doing all right. And and I actually read something that said like the peak, um, if you look at like, say, Nobel Prize winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, stuff like that, um, happiness levels, politicians, the average age is 60. So like that was something that really gave me a little exactly. peace of mind is that it's like, you know, I got 30 more years to really <laughs> start stressing out about it. I kind of want to wrap up the way that I, I, I've started liking to wrap up is by asking you personally, you know, it sounds like sports is a big part yeah. of it, but um, you personally, what you do in your free time to kind of find that piece. I know the marketing, e-commerce, business, it's all extremely stressful and it requires a lot of balance. So how do you achieve that sort of balance? Yeah, so definitely sports. I love boxing and also watching football. Right at the time recording, we're about to go into the World Cup. So I got my fingers crossed that England can finally win that. The last one we won was 1966. So excited for that, even though it's going to be a bit weird at this time of year. But yeah, definitely sport. I try to read if I can. And then also just going to the gym. I think that's a great meditation. But the last one I'll say, and this is my favorite, is walking in nature. I've never found a better cleanser of the mind than walking in nature. And literally, if I go and walk in nature, I'm talking about the proper outdoors for 30 minutes on my own, no headphones or anything like that, not listening to podcasts, just me, nature, nothing else. I've never regretted it. And I've always felt so much better after it. So honestly, it's a pretty simple remedy, but it's always worked well for me. No, that's great. I think that's really good advice. I'm going to, I'm going to go maybe take a walk after this. Pretty challenging in New York city though. I'm here right now. Well, that's why I'm thinking of potentially moving to Canada in the new year. So let's see what happens. Anything else you'd want to um, you want to plug while we got you? Yeah. So if anyone wants to connect on LinkedIn, I actually post content there every single day about paid social, about the strategies. You know, I go behind the scenes and show the strategies we're using to scale these, you know, eight-figure direct-to-consumer brands. So if anyone wants to see my content or connect on LinkedIn, I love connecting with like-minded entrepreneurs feel free to shoot me a message. If you just Google Nigel Thomas Alpha Inbounds, I should be there and just pop up. And if you are interested in working with us as a company, it's just alphainbound.com. You'll be able to book in a call there. And yeah, if you've got any questions, let me know. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, you're doing great things. I know you're the new host of this podcast. I'm looking forward to seeing the direction that you take this in. Appreciate you coming on the show, Nigel, and welcome to the States. No worries. Great to be here. I want to thank Nigel for joining us on the show and thanks to our producer, Micah Quinto, for producing it. Tune in next week when I talk with Brandon Amoroso, the founder and president of a Shopify Plus marketing agency called Electric, now a drinks company. On that episode, we discuss retention strategies and the power of subscription programs. For more information about Alpha Inbound, you can check out their website, alphainbound.com, or you can listen to their podcast, Ecom Alphas, hosted by Nigel on all podcast platforms. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune into new episodes being published every Tuesday. Until next time.